there is a, an action, I won't say a movement yet, but an action underway that uh, we may, in fact, in the near term, actually rename the U.S. Fire Administration to the U.S. Fire and EMS Administration. Yeah. This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. Hey, I'm Dr. Brandon Morchetti from Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, so far today, day one, my top three takeaways. Number one, Dr. Levy said, if you're not getting good uh, synchronized uh, cardioversion on your T waves, switch your leads. Uh, number two, uh, the panel talking about de-emphasizing chest compressions and traumatic CPR, that's going to be a game changer for us. And then number three, Dr. Shepke just talking about ketamine for status epilepticus. I've seen that personally work in my own practice. Hi everyone, I'm Peter Antevi and I'm a medical director here in South Florida. Uh, we're here at the Eagles, this is day one. Top takeaways for me, oh, well there were many, but uh, number one, first and foremost, was the data, the new data on heads-up CPR, looking at the shockable cases, that was incredible, but then looking at the non-shockable neuro-intact survival compared to standard CPR was pretty impressive. Uh, that's number one. Uh, the second thing, I loved uh, Dr. Jay Johannigman, who joined us, trauma surgeon, uh, talking about uh, TXA, talking about calcium, um, and, you know, the fact that we're giving whole blood in adults and kids, TXA in adults and kids. Hi, I'm Joseph Zalkin. I'm with the Wake EMS Foundation out of Raleigh, North Carolina. And the two issues that I've picked up on is whole blood interest as well as what to do with traumatic uh, cardiac arrest. Personally, that a lot of the things that are talked about at Eagles and why we keep coming is because within five years it almost becomes system normal or at least more normal. More people have heard about it. So it allows us to kind of be the first and the leaders in industry. Yeah, absolutely. What you're seeing here is usually a projection maybe five years out and so many of the things we hear about are actually coming into this, this space. Hello and welcome back to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host Rob Lawrence and I'm back in my home studio currently editing up uh, this episode of the One Stop. I've just returned from Hollywood, the other Hollywood, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, from the Gathering of Eagles and uh, that little intro you just uh, heard uh, Joe Zolkin, Dr. Brandon Morchetti, Dr. Peter Antevi, and Peter and Amber Hossick giving their top takeaways from this year's Gathering of Eagles. It's always an exciting time. Uh, if you haven't been there before, it is literally a thousand of your closest friends in one room uh, getting instruction, getting innovation, getting inspiration from the nation's top EMS medical directors. And if you haven't been, I do commend that you go. So this report is just going to feature some of the key speakers and some of the key takeaways from this year's Eagles. Uh, let's get right into it then and uh, talk about uh, the US Fire Administrator, Dr. Laurie Moore Merrill, who gave uh, a keynote or certainly addressed the room about the composition of the US Fire Administration, uh, talked about uh, the recent standing up of an EMS branch and actually they're currently, uh, there's currently a job search for the person to be the chief and lead that. Uh, talking about the relationship between the Metropolitan Medical Directors, which is the official name for the Eagles, 
and connecting them up with the Metropolitan Fire Chiefs, which are the five bugle uh, leading EMS chiefs from our large fire systems in the nation. And then also, and perhaps somewhat controversially, uh, identifying that uh, they're seeking a name change from USFA, the US Fire Administration, to the US Fire and EMS Administration. Um, that may not go down well with some of you listening, but uh, let's go over to Dr. Moore Merrill's years that remarks. I've been able to stay in touch and, and stay current with what they're doing. And Paul and I can go months without talking and then just we get a text or a call and, and we're uh, up and running again. And as he just mentioned, um, collaboration with the Metropolitan Fire Chiefs group, um, that is a division of both the NFPA and the IAFC. It is uh, the fire chiefs, only the five bugle chiefs of the largest departments throughout the U.S. So departments with fire, um, more than 350 firefighters, that's their threshold. And I think that's an excellent collaboration uh, go forward for many of the innovations that you're going to hear about today and tomorrow is that we need to spread it out through the fire EMS services uh, across the nation and internationally. And so USFA, uh, we are going to stand with both those organizations and try to help do that. So USFA, if you're not familiar with the United States Fire Administration, uh, we are uh, part of FEMA, as Paul said, but also we have a separate mission where FEMA responds to disasters. We are there to prepare all of our first responders, particularly fire and EMS providers, to prevent, prepare for, mitigate, and respond to all hazards. So not just fire, not just EMS, but everything else, uh, the god-awful things that you all respond to throughout your careers. And so we do that um, on the front lines. We do that in a way that we can now begin to promote more EMS. Uh, we've just stood up in January an EMS branch within our National Fire and change the name, Fire and EMS Programs Division. So that is a huge move. Thank you, Paul, for, um, for USFA. And we're gonna be moving toward even bigger announcements in the near future, I hope, but really embracing what we do in the fire service that is uh, greater than 70%. Most departments is 75 and up of EMS. So we are uh, having a whole new, whole new vision, uh, I think, for the United States Fire Administration going forward. And we're really excited to do that alongside with people like Paul Pepe. So thank you for letting me have a few minutes this morning, Paul, to address the group. And thank you all for being present to be on the cutting edge of what is happening in EMS. And so we'd like to give a national award to someone who has really worked most of her career, if not all of her career, in trying to bring together two in the past divergent services and merging them into one. Dr. Moore, could you come up? Yeah. A lot of people have a lot of power, but not that many powerful people do things to bring others together in a meaningful way. Congratulations. I am because I love this group and I was around when the initial conversations were happening about this group and I continue to follow uh, all of you because uh, Paul, Paul keeps telling me what you're doing um, in the way that only Paul can and so I, I'm just so grateful and you know thanks for pointing out coming together because that's what it's going to take yeah uh, working together working with teams and, and pulling together what is reality 
The reality is what you said, 75% of what we do in the fire response space is in fact EMS. And so if we can, and, and something that I shared with these guys yesterday, there is a, an action, I won't say a movement yet, but an action underway that uh, we may, in fact, in the near term, actually rename the U.S. Fire Administration to the U.S. Fire and EMS Administration. I have friends, uh, some call them lobbyists, but I can't call them that, uh, who are working that problem. And uh, from the inside, we are certainly going to support that. We are building new EMS resources and bolstering them. And I'm going to be turning because one thing I say to fire chiefs, um, folks, is that when I call, please answer your phone because I need something. Um, and so uh, when I call you, please answer your phone because I'm going to need something. And uh, we will leverage this relationship. Uh, going forward. So. At the end there, we also saw uh, Dr. Moore Merrill uh, receive uh, an Eagle Award from uh, not only Dr. Pepe, but also Dr. Corey Slovis, uh, who, as many know, is the EMS Medical Director in Nashville and Nashville Fire. What did you think of that? I noticed that just uh, from the recent few days looking at social media, there are uh, both pros and cons, and people are already coming out to opine on that. So what do you think? Leave your comments uh, in the show notes or leave your comments uh, on the platform on which you're listening to us on, of course. So moving on, I also had the chance to uh, chat with Dr. James Augustine. Jim Augustine is uh, the curator of Eagles. Uh, he, I think, is the memory of the organization. Uh, he takes all of the discussions that go on throughout the year. And of course, the thing about Eagles is they meet pretty much weekly during the pandemic, twice weekly, to discuss the issues. And as you'll hear from Dr. Augustine, uh, they do uh, communicate, collaborate, and really uh, identify issues that uh, can help us all in EMS, which is really exciting. Uh, so Dr. Augustine uh, goes over the, the key points from his session, the key takeaways, identifies a few problems, and of course, a few solutions. So here's my discussion with Dr. Jim Augustine. Dr. Augustine, this morning you gave an amazing opening session. And uh, before we go there, though, you've had this quite remarkable role. I, I, I think you're the tribal memory of Eagles. Mm. What do you do within the Eagles organization? Um, what I have done over the years is record all of the threads of conversations that we have uh, related to medical care, organizational improvements, and best practices. I consolidate all of those, put them in a nice index system, and have them available for Eagles or anyone else who needs them in later years. And so this really hopefully sets the scene for what you talked about this morning. Right. And, uh, you had a number of kind of headings and, and, and items, and, and if I may, I'll cover some of those because I think that you really imparted some, some amazing knowledge. Recruiting and retention, um, recruiting pipelines, educational pipelines, you said that uh, because of COVID, we're obliterated. And obviously there's a recovery task for us all in that. Right, so uh, Paul, Paul Pepe at the beginning of COVID had us think through how we were gonna address this. One of the pieces of this was to define what we were going to do initially, how we were going to then um, wind down operations at the end, and then how we were going to fill the gaps. And we knew that one of the gaps that was being formed deeper and deeper uh, was that we were losing people, particularly senior members of our services, 
and uh, we would have very little in the recruiting pipeline because we literally had, had shut down recruiting and we had shut down many of the educational programs and then understood that the educational programs may have people going through didactics, but they were missing all the hands-on. So we knew coming out of this that there would be uh, real gaps in personnel. So our opportunity was to say, what are we gonna do about this? And then how are we gonna fill it as quickly as possible when we're done? We may be on the way to getting done, but of course, another thing that you contend is we're also getting poached. And now we want folk to experience EMS because that's, you know, perhaps the gateway drug to to life in healthcare. Well right. Very well said, Rob. Thank you very much. But of course, sometimes they're taken before we're ready for them to go. Um, you made a point about how, and actually, in that kind of, you know, that gateway employment that we give them. We were able to do some selecting and some, you know, perhaps even pruning and weeding. Right. And what do you mean by that? And that's really important. Over the 50 years that EMS has been in this country, um, we have been very successful in taking young people and introducing them to the healthcare system. And in doing that, uh, finding the ones that have an interest and a caring attitude that's so important in any healthcare field. And very frankly, and people who built skills within EMS and people who didn't really have those skills and and early on could be identified as saying I, I, I'm not for the healthcare arena or only for a niche part of it like I want to do all the technology or or whatever uh, so it's been important for us to cultivate people like plant the seeds within the healthcare field uh, and some people grow into EMTs and paramedics, and some people grow into respiratory therapists or radiology techs or nurses, docs, uh, and other people. That's really important. A second piece to that is in these days where everybody is short, we don't have enough radiology techs, lab techs, nurses, etc. Our early members are getting poached uh, by people who are short in those arenas. And in particular, the hospitals have been going to the EMS systems and saying, hey, we offer a job with a, little higher, with a lot higher salary. Um, and why don't you come and work with us and we'll give you a shift schedule um, that um, allows you just to do that as a full-time rather than doing multiple part-times or one full-time and one part-time in EMS to maintain the same income. Those are really important things for EMS leaders to recognize. And, and then be able to put steps in to keep your people within your department and ask the hospitals and other agencies not to be poaching them. Now, and uh, in a later session on day two of Eagles, uh, you had all of your teams stand up in the room because your own department is not only recruited, it's retained, um, you're full. So what's the secret sauce there? Yeah, the, uh, the real secret sauce for this department, and I claim no credit for this, this was all done before I got there, uh, but through the major crises of COVID and, the, and a hurricane that impacted that area very severely, this department went out of its way in any number of ways to address the needs of their people, to retain them through a, a critical work time, um, to recover the people that got impacted by the hurricane, and to keep their, their membership and employment intact. Now we've come out of COVID. Uh, we had very little in the way of hiring needs. Um, and we had the opportunity to attract people to a force where it's not, you're gonna start to work for us and then you're gonna get uh, overtime uh, that's, gonna, that's gonna be very impactful on your life. Uh, those are really important steps. And what I think it points out, Rob, um, is that if you take care of your people during a crisis, then you're coming out of that crisis in much better shape. 
I think so far, Jim, that's the soundbite that counts, but uh, let's move on. Uh, our other public sector colleagues, particularly police, now have mastered body-worn cameras. Um, sometimes, of course, they are a force for good. Sometimes they will identify, you know, the, the, the poor practice amongst colleagues. Um, certainly in my experience, I've had, had moments where the police officer's body-worn camera is focusing on the medic in the room, and therefore there's no kind of comeback because it's what, you know, they were doing versus what the cop was doing, perhaps. Um, but I think it's coming into EMS. What do you think? Yeah, I think it is. And um, when when people have talked about it, they talk about the protection of the EMS provider uh, by using the camera. Not so much medical protection, but protection uh, when there's instances where the patient is assaulting the crew or the family members are assaulting the crew. Um, what's different about us is um, in the fire and EMS world, we work in teams. And we are, we're not individual based and we never should really be individual based. Um, our, our colleagues in law enforcement are all an individual based service. So two things, uh, within a team, we have the ability to document and, and know what happened in an event because you've got a team there with you uh, that can assist you in doing that. Um, and number two, um, we have the opportunity at any time to appear on other people's video. And so people need to be prepared that their actions may be recorded not only by a law enforcement officer who's wearing a body-worn camera, uh, but by all of the members of the public or the family who may be recording the interaction uh, on their video series and they can edit it however they want. And unfortunately that can come back and hurt our EMS people. Indeed, of course, my other specialist subject is teaching people how to be a PIO, and my one question is, who's recording you these days? The answer is everybody. Everybody is um, recording you. So we might as well be a part of that and actually preserve, you know, and, and I think also from a QI perspective, it's really useful to have that first-hand contemporaneous you know, account of the event, even. Right. Um, and, that, you know, on the medical side, we have had experience, uh, starting with really trauma patient resuscitation, where we have recorded it for quality improvement processes, recorded trauma resuscitations, uh, kept them for a very short period of time and then destroyed them uh, because there's tons of patient confidentiality issues. And, and in the fi fire world, not as much confidentiality. In the EMS world, there's a lot of confidentiality issues and a great deal of concern anytime we have a camera on and we're discussing very personal items and taking a look at very personal areas of skin on the patient. Uh, for us to be recording that as a matter of our process can result in a lot of privacy issues. Just going to go back to the kind of employment-based question for you, but of course one of the other things you talked about is that uh, you know roles are expanding. I've always maintained with a great health and social care safety net, and now our roles I think are expanding to allow us to do that. Uh, we have uh, the ET3 program, although you know there's only 203 or so organisations involved in that, but eventually they will prove the case to CMS that it's a good idea. Um, you know we are. Getting, certainly during the pandemic, we had waivers to allow us to, you know, treat in place and to transport um, to alternative destinations. Obviously, those waivers have gone. ET3 remains, community paramedic programs remain, but uh, you know, it's perhaps the future is bright in that respect. Yeah, it's really bright uh, for for a, a number of people. Most importantly, is our communities. Uh, that have shown that they have unscheduled care needs and that the healthcare system is not working for them for whatever reason. Uh, piece two is uh, we have the opportunity to extend the lives of some of our clinicians uh, who really uh, aren't at the place where they can carry stretchers and patients up and down three flights of stairs as a matter of process. Um, and those people oftentimes in the, in the later parts of their career 
uh, really develop a skill set that's fabulous for doing longitudinal care of patients and for taking on patient encounters that don't involve a lot of loading and lifting and administration of drugs. Um, so this is a longevity producer for our some of our staff members. Number three, there's a real community need and it keeps growing. Whether we get paid by Medicare through the ET3 program or not, this is the right thing to do for our communities. It lessens the load on our on our 911 system. Uh, and number three, it fills the gaps in any kind of services within your community. And actually, as a, I think as the nation's saw during COVID, we will always do the right thing and act. In fact, sometimes no matter what cost. Right. And so that's important. Um, my, my final question to you on this particular subject is, uh, you talked about supply chain. You know, we've been waiting literally now years for ambulances. Mm. Medications are problematic. Uh, do you see an end to this? Um, I, I, the hardware issues, I think we will resolve because there's um, money in a competitive system. And so our, our ability to get vehicles and 20 gauge catheters and oxygen tubing, I think will resolve itself as the world stabilizes. Uh, one of the pieces to this is we're gonna have more manufacturing in this country. And with that, it's gonna come industrial injuries and, and, and railroad carts that, that catch on fire and all of the stuff that goes with the dirty business of manufacturing products. And we, we as a society have to be prepared for that. Um, that, that is a, a renewal of the American manufacturing industry that we, we have been on the downside, the downslope of for a long, long time. There are other industries, frankly, that aren't very competitive and monopolistic and um, where Americans have, have really been subject to uh, a tremendous amount of heartache. Uh, one of them is in the area of medications that they need to run their life, insulin, <laughs> basic hypertension uh, medicines, but then cancer medicines, emergency medicines, and respiratory care medicines, and, and medicine for your child like acetaminophen or ibuprofen uh, that are in shortage. I, I wanna reinforce this is American manufacturers of, of our medications who are not doing their job. And because there isn't enough of a profit margin in these drugs that are 70 or 80 or 100 years old, uh, they have decided not to manufacture them and we don't have an international supply uh, because the FDA has shut down international supplies of medications. So um, and to, we, we've been fighting this for 12 years. This has been my issue for 12 years is the medication shortages. And today I got the newest list. It's 116 lines long. Um, 13 years ago, there were zero drugs on a shortage list. Now there's 116 this week. Um, and those medicines are our very basic and most important medicines, including albuterol, acetaminophen, um, ibuprofen, um, uh, fentanyl, midazolam, other critical care meds, and we don't have them available. And that's an American problem, and we're going to have to get our federal government to take real aggressive action against manufacturers in order to get our meds back. That sounds like a massive call to action to our legislators, to our lobbyists, and to people that spend, uh, like me, time on the hill. And so, uh, well said. A call um, to action. A call to action, absolutely. Um, one of the things you left us with, of course, is uh, Eagles, is uh, to share best practice, is best practice. So let's plug next year's conference. Uh, if you couldn't get to Eagles, or if you've never been to Eagles, why should you come? Um, this is this is the, the, the state of the art science uh, being, being 
uh, talked about by my partners here that are on the Eagles. Uh, it'll be next June. I think the dates are the 10th through the 14th of 2024. Um, and if you want to know what's going to be going on next year in EMS, this is the conference that you come to. It's a brilliant set of minds um, who are who are really good at the science and really good at knowing what the trends are. They gather at this meeting and people in the audience are the same and sharing ideas back and forth is an enriching opportunity. Dr. Augustine, I always enjoy listening to you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. I always like talking uh, to Dr. Augustine. He is also, uh, I forgot to mention, the medical director for Lee County in Florida. And uh, they were the epicenter of uh, the large hurricane that hit last year. So uh, they certainly had their work cut out. Uh, that's my report and a little bit of commentary from Eagles. Don't forget, before you go, uh, if you uh, are listening to us on some sort of mobile phone device, look for the little check mark or the little plus sign on the device that you're listening to us on. Hit that, and that means you'll like and subscribe. And so every time an episode of EMS One Stop comes along, then you'll get notification that we're here. So there's a lot of uh, content coming out on Eagles across many social media platforms. Uh, my home team, Prodigy, uh, did, uh, did a bang-up job of uh, covering, retweeting, and uh, uh, visit uh, that site. Uh, also, go to Twitter, at uh, EaglesGather, or just look up hashtag GatheringEagles23, and you can pick up all of the commentary. Um, Dr. Brandon Morshetti, who we saw at the start of the, uh, of the uh, podcast, or we listened to at the start of the podcast, um, also uh, did a lot of uh, retweeting the papers and the references. And again, so you can pick up a lot of that stuff on there. Um, so that's pretty much it this week. Uh, it's been an exciting week to be away in Florida to uh, talk to the Eagles. And uh, there's a lot more content and coverage coming out. And we'll also put a really great vlog link in the show notes uh, from, uh, from the session, which I think really summarizes everything beautifully. So that's all for now. As I said, don't forget to like and subscribe. Follow me on Twitter or over on LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter, I'm UKRobL1. The one is really important. And so I've been Rob Lawrence. I was at Eagles. That's it for now. And until next time, bye for now. Paul Pepe, I helped to coordinate this Eagles conference. And we really look forward to seeing you next year, uh, you know, on hashtag EaglesGather24.